I'm going to ask you if you have a Bible or if you have any kind of device with a version Bible app on it, grab it and go to Philippians chapter 2 with me. Uh, if you showed up today and you don't have anything with you, that's okay. Everything we'll read will be on the screen so you can follow along with us there, all right? But as you're finding your way to Philippians 2, um, let me ask you this question. How many of us in the room would be honest enough to say today that at times we feel like being a follower of Jesus is hard work, um, that it, it, it results in busyness, that there are a lot of demands on us to do certain things, to act in certain ways. Anybody ever felt like that? Being a follower of Jesus is just a whole lot of work. Just raise your hand if you feel it. Don't, don't lie in church, all right? Come on now. All right, I'm raising my hand. Listen, um, I, I'm right there with you. There's been plenty of moments and seasons of my life where, where I've felt that way, and I assume to be the case for a lot of us. I also assume that, that maybe some of us walked in the door today, and, uh, and we haven't bought into this whole Jesus Christianity thing just yet, because something inside of us tells us that if we sign up for this thing, all that we're going to gain by doing so is extra religious work. Well, here's what I want all of us to understand. Being a follower of Jesus does, in fact, require work, but not work in the sense of what we think of oftentimes when we think about work. I mean, think about work for you. Think about what you do in your job every day. Why do you work? Isn't it most oftentimes because you're trying to impress somebody and or you're trying to earn something, right? You show up every day and you say to your boss through your actions, boss, I'm, I'm gonna work hard, I'm gonna prove that I'm a good employee, I'm gonna show you through my hard work that I deserve the raise, I deserve the promotion, and so you work to impress. Um, and also, and this is just pretty common sense, we work to earn what? Money, right? Nobody goes to work and works for free, we think about work, man, we're working to get something, aren't we? And, that, and that's something's money. It's not bad because we all need to eat and live. But again, oftentimes we associate work with proving ourselves and earning something. But you have to know that, that when it comes to our relationship with Jesus, it's much different. Even though we're called to work as followers of Jesus, we don't work to prove anything, and we surely don't work to earn anything. And it makes sense of what I'm saying. We're going to go ahead and dive right into our passage for today. So if you have your Bibles open, um, we're going to start reading in verse 12 of Philippians chapter 2. And, and I want you to see what Paul has to say to this church at Philippi. Here's what he writes. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence. Here's our word, work, right? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, at first glance, we might think again, because we see that word work, that, that what Paul's telling us is this, that it's our job as people to do certain things, to act in certain ways in order to prove ourselves to God so that we can convince him to love us, to accept us, to save us, to forgive us. So, for example, we might think, well, Paul's telling me I should go to church every week, I should serve other people, I should give money, um, I should be a good rule follower, I should live up to some particular moral standard so that by working really hard, God has reason to love and accept me. But, but look, that's not it at all. I mean, it's not Christianity, that's not the teaching of the Bible, and this is not what Paul was getting at. Instead, he's making a really important point in this passage that I want you to write down if you're taking notes, and, and we'll unpack it and make sense of it. Here's what Paul's telling us. He's telling us that as followers of Jesus Christ, 
We should be waking up and working every day from salvation, not for it. That we should wake up every day and work hard to be the people that God's created us to be, not to earn anything from God, but because God's already given us everything we need through Jesus Christ. That we're supposed to work, again, not for salvation, but from it. And let's make sense of this, okay? Um, It's no secret that this book I'm holding in my hand teaches that not a single person in this room can serve as their own saviors, right? Like there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves from what we deserve from God. And we'll talk more about that in just a minute. But, but here's what that means. Man, it means that you can come to church every week. You can love and serve people. You can give more money than anybody else in this room. You can be the best rule follower. You can be, you can be the churchiest person at cross point. And none of your hard work will change anything between you and God. And you want to know why that's true? Because God's not out there looking for good people. He's looking for perfect people. You see, God's standard, if we want to have a relationship with him, is perfection. He's perfect, so he wants us to be perfect. If we want a relationship with God, he's sinless, so it means we have to be sinless. Now, I don't know about you, but that poses a big problem for me. right? Because I am far from perfect, and I am far from sinless. And if you're that one person in the room going, I don't know, bro, I got this, man. I'm perfect. I'm sinless. You just proved you're not because you're a liar, right? Nobody, nobody in this room today is perfect or sinless. But guess who is? And this is where it's okay to give the Sunday school answer, right? Jesus is. Jesus is perfect. Jesus is, is sinless. And he proved that to be true 2,000 years ago when he came to this earth as a man and he lived a perfect sinless life. The life that you and I should have lived. And because Jesus was perfect, he had both the power and ability to pay the price that our sin deserved to God on our behalf. And if you're new to this whole church Jesus thing, and and you're going, well, James, what's the price for, for my sin? Well, what do I owe God because of my imperfection? Well, the Bible teaches that the consequence of sin, it's death. That because we're sinful, because we're imperfect, because God's not, what we deserve is to die, both physically, and we all get that, we're familiar with that, but also spiritually, meaning that after our physical lives on this earth are over, what we deserve is to be separated from God for the rest of eternity, suffering punishment for our imperfection. And here's what's so beautiful, here's what's beautiful. Jesus, when he came to this earth, he suffered both forms of death on our behalf in our place. You see, Jesus, 2,000 years ago, he was beaten. The Bible says beyond recognition that when these Roman soldiers were done with him, he didn't even look like a human being any longer. He allowed himself to be nailed to a cross, and he died physically in our place for our sins. But that wasn't the worst part. You see, on the cross for six hellish hours, Jesus allowed God to punish him in our place for our sin. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that that at the cross, Jesus actually became your sin and mine. You know what that means? It means that Jesus became um, your anger problem. Jesus became your lust issue. Jesus became your pornography addiction. He became your your alcohol or drug abuse. He became your, your ability to be a terrible wife or a husband. He became your sin at the cross so that God could pour out the punishment that your sin deserved onto Jesus so he'd never have to pour it out onto you. And while that was going on, listen, guess what happened? Jesus was separated from God the Father. 
God literally turned his back on his son and he left him to suffer alone. You see, at the cross, Jesus experienced literal hell for you and me so that we would never have to know what hell is like. Man, if that's hard for you to understand, like James, I don't know if I can get my brain around that. Um, let me use an illustration to bring it to life, okay? Imagine this. Imagine like a courtroom setting. Serial killer is on trial, right? He's committed tons of murders. Everybody knows he's guilty because he's confessed to it. And there's plenty of eyewitnesses in the courtroom who've seen him commit his crimes. And so they, they convict him, he's guilty. And then the judge stands up and hands down the punishment. And the punishment is, bro, since you killed all these people, um, we're killing you, right? Death sentence, electric chair's coming your way. Imagine that happens. And then right after it happens, somebody in the crowd literally stands up and says, judge, whoa, 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 wait. I said, I know he's guilty. Don't, don't punish him. I, I'll be punished in his place. Like, don't kill him, kill me. Let him go free, and I'll suffer through what he deserves. See, I know all of us were going, in our brain, that's stupid, right? Nobody would ever do that. That's insane. Yet, this is exactly what Jesus has done for us. Jesus, I mean, imagine, stood before God the Father and said, God, I, I know that they're guilty. I know they're imperfect. I know they deserve death. Let me take their punishment. I'll stand in their place. Take all of your anger for sin out on me so that you never have to take it out on them. And listen to me, because of what Jesus has done for us, if you know him as your savior, you are loved and accepted by God totally, fully, and forever, both in this life and in the next, which means you have nothing to prove to God. There's nothing left for you to earn. Jesus has done all the hard work required to earn your salvation and mine, and there's nothing left to do. What that means, again, this is beautiful, is that you're a follower of Jesus, that there is nothing you could ever do in life that would cause God to love you more, and there's nothing, absolutely nothing you could do in life that would ever make God love you less. So again, look, look, look. your job as a follower of Christ, it's not to work for salvation, God, look at me, I read the Bible today, I went to church today, I gave some money today, aren't you proud? Uh, don't you love me more? No, 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 that's not the job, that's not your job. Your job is to work from your salvation. Your job is to come to church, to give money, to serve and to love others, to read the scriptures, to pray, to work hard to become that person that God's created you and saved you to be, not because you're trying to be accepted, but because you understand that you already are accepted. You don't work so that you can earn God's love. You work because you understand that God already loves you in spite of you. Do you hear the difference? We work from salvation, not for it. Now, I would assume there's probably a couple different people in the room wrestling right now, right? Maybe some of us are in the room and we're thinking, oh, James, that sounds fantastic and fine, and I'd really like to believe that, but bro, you don't know me. Like, you don't know the things that I've done. You know the mistakes I've made, the past I've lived, and if you knew my story, you wouldn't be saying that to me. You'd be saying, yeah, bro, sounds like you got a lot to earn. Sounds like there's a lot you've done in life that you need to make up to God for. Yeah, 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 you're right. You need to prove yourself. Now, there might be others of us in the room who are on the opposite end of the spectrum who, who may be sitting here thinking, well, this is awesome. Well, if I get to work from it, I don't have to work for it, and and if salvation's mine because of Jesus, and if God loves me and accepts me, and there's nothing I can ever do to make him love me more, nothing I can ever do to make him love me less, then dude, I'll just kick back and relax. I'm not gonna work hard, I'm just gonna enjoy this, right? And I'll just kinda live life however I want. 
Listen, if you hold to either of those mindsets, first off, I'll tell you that both mindsets are wrong. And I'll attempt to diagnose both of those wrong mindsets by going back to the end of verse 12, right? Listen, Paul doesn't just say that as followers of Christ, we should work out our salvation. He says that we should work out our salvation with fear and trembling. See, I I have to believe that if you hold to either of these mindsets that I just described, that here's the problem. The problem in your life is this that you either have an unhealthy fear of God or you have absolutely no fear of God at all. And I'll kind of explain what I mean, okay? And I'll start with unhealthy fear first. First, you have to understand that when the Bible talks about fearing God, it's not describing a fear that would cause us to approach God like like a scared kid approaching an unloving father. Um, It's not describing a fear that would cause us to approach God like like you know, a scared slave approaching a violent, abusive master. That's not the idea behind fear of God. Yet, yet, look, this is how some of us view God, isn't it? And this is how some of us relate to God, isn't it? Some of us think, well, God's always displeased with me. He's that dad that's just constantly demanding, do more, do more, do more. Prove yourself, prove yourself. Some of us, we think of God as, well, he's just this big master in the sky. I'm a slave. I'm supposed to do what he says to keep him at peace so that he doesn't take all his anger out on me. So some of us think of God. Now listen, what I'm describing here is both unbiblical and it it signifies an unhealthy fear of God in your life. I want to read a passage from Romans 8, Romans 8, 15, that really brings clarity to how you and I should view and relate to God. Simple passage. Listen to this. Paul, he's the writer here. He says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. He's saying, if you're a follower of Jesus and the Holy Spirit's in you, that spirit doesn't make you fearful of God the Father. But, but instead, you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. This word Abba in this passage, it's, it's an amazing term. It's, it's a really affectionate relational term that when translated into English, it simply means daddy. And what this word reminds us of is simple, that if we know Christ, God, the God of the universe, he is a loving, affectionate dad toward us, and we are loved sons and daughters of his. This word reminds us that God's love for you and I isn't dependent on what we do or don't do. His love is simply dependent on the fact that we're his kids. And I've said this before, but I'll say it again. Parents in the room, you should get this more than anybody, right? I mean, parents, why do you love your kids? Is it because they listen all the time? They bring home A's on the report cards. The room is always spick and span clean. They always say, yes, sir, no, sir, right? Is that why? It's not. I mean, it'd be helpful, right? But that's not why you love them. Why do you love your kids? Well, you love them because they're yours, right? You love them because they're your son or your daughter. Your love for them isn't dependent on what they do or don't do. And it's the same with God and us. And it absolutely breaks my heart as to how many people I've met as a pastor who have literally just given up on working to become the person that God created them and saved them to be because they live with this very wrong view of God. And maybe you're that person in the room today. And and if you are, I just want to remind you that God loves you more than you could ever comprehend. And the last thing he would ever want is for you to give up on him because you believe that he's someone that he's not. 
Now, for the others of us in the room who are kind of kicking back, this is sweet, and I don't have to fear God, and kind of do what I want, I'll try to, to kind of unpack what I think your issue may be, okay? I'm assuming that you probably think this way for a couple of reasons. One, maybe it's because you view God as a permissive father who expresses his love toward his kids by letting his kids do whatever in the world they want, Right? That God's just this dad, right? He's hanging on the couch, drinking hand, feet up on the coffee table. Kids have at it. Run wild. I love you. Just get into anything. Maybe that's your view of God. And so you don't really think of God as this being to be feared at all because, man, he's just cool with you. Live your life how you want. Now, before we keep going, I just want to point out the ridiculousness of this logic if I can, okay? Let me ask you this question. What loving dad lets his kids do whatever in the world they want? No loving dad does that, do they? And I'm telling you, I have a two and a half year old daughter at home. If I let her do whatever she wants, she would not be alive today. Straight up, right? The girl is insane. And because I love my daughter and I want the best for her, you know what I've done? I've put certain commands in place, certain rules, certain boundaries. Um, I've closed off certain portions of the house to her, right? And I do that because I love my daughter and I want to make sure that she enjoys life and enjoys it to the full. You see, you have to know God's not a permissive dad. He doesn't express his love toward us by kicking back and saying, do what you want, because that's not true love. You see, dad, or, or God is a loving dad who sets boundaries, commands, rules in place for us as his kids to ensure that we live in greater freedom, greater joy, and that we don't walk down paths that could literally ruin our lives. That's who he is. Now, um, for others, the second reason that I think maybe some of us struggle with having any type of fear of God at all is this. Maybe because you're someone who believes deep down that God has absolutely no right to tell you what to do. And again, I know that's hard, but I think maybe if some of us were honest, that's what we'd say. Well, well, who is God? Why should he tell me how to live my life? And if that's you, I just want to say this, man. I I love you, and I'm concerned for you, so I'm going to say something hard to you, okay? Do you understand that you're a created being (laughs) that you wouldn't exist on this planet if God wouldn't have thought of you. Do you understand that the only reason you're alive right now is because God's letting you be alive? I mean, Paul says in Acts 17, 28, that it's in God that we live and we move and we have our being. You see, I think it would change so much for so many of our lives if we could just be humble enough and honest enough to admit that we understand that we are tiny little human beings who will live on this tiny little planet called Earth for a few short years and that there is this big eternal God who created everything in existence, including us, and because he's creator and we are created, he has every right to tell us how to live our lives. You see, we can't ever allow ourselves to think that we're so important that the God who created us should simply stay out of our business and keep his thoughts to himself. So with all that in mind, let's go back to this whole fear thing. What in the world does Paul mean when he says that we should work out our salvation with fear and trembling? Well, well, here's what he means. Fear, according to the scriptures, means that you and I hold a deep sense of awe, respect, and reverence toward him because we understand who he is and what he's capable of. You see, our our fear of God should be grounded in our understanding that yes, he is a loving father toward us, but that he's also a big, powerful God that could literally flick us off the face of the earth at any moment if he wanted, right? And and I've used this illustration to kind of make sense of this. I'll use it again. My relationship with my dad has always been incredible. 
Like I have a fantastic dad. Growing up, he was always loving and affectionate toward my brother and I. He's a godly man to this day. And so I never was worried that my dad was going to come home in some angry fit and take all that stuff out on us. But I still dreaded to ever hear those words from my mom, these words, just wait till your dad gets home, right? Like I knew dad loved me. And I knew that he loved me enough to not let me get away from things that were going to ruin me, right? And so there was this healthy fear inside dad or inside me toward, toward dad. Yes, he loves me and he's a great loving father, but I really believe that God or that dad could squash me and take me out if he wanted to. And, and I still kind of think that to this day, even as a grown man, dad could take me out. And that understanding of, of who dad was, it helped me to live with a healthy fear of, of him. And the same is true when it comes to us and God, that's healthy fear. Healthy fear is, God, I know you love me. God, I know you accept me, but I also understand you could squash me, so I'm gonna choose to live my life in a way that honors you so that I don't ever provoke you to anger. That's the healthy fear of God. Now, after Paul kind of teaches through that, he goes on in verse 13, and he points us to another incredible truth. Listen to this. He says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I love this. Paul's going, listen, you work hard, work hard, work hard to become the person God wants you to be. Do it with a healthy fear of who he is. But just remember that as you're working, God's working. As you're working on you, God's working in and on you at the same time. And the reason I love this verse so much is because it's a great reminder to me that God's not this dad who calls his kids to do seemingly impossible things just to sit back and watch them struggle. But instead, he calls us to be a certain type of person, and his commitment to us is this. He's going to come alongside us. He's going to encourage us. He's going to give us power every step of the way to help us become those people that he wants us to become. And here's the cool thing. The reason God does that for us, the reason he works in us and on us as we're working on us, is because there are very specific plans and purposes that he wants to accomplish through our lives here on the earth. That's what Paul means when he says God is working for his will and his good pleasure. See, I think this thought should amaze us. Think about this. But there are things that the God of the universe wants to do in little old Cartersville at this moment in history and all of the surrounding areas. There are very specific purposes that God wants to accomplish in our city, our state, and our world. There are specific plans that God wants to pull off in your neighborhood, at your workplace, at the ball field, at your gym, wherever it may be. And do you know how God wants to pull off all those plans and purposes? He wants to use your life and he wants to use my life to accomplish all those things, which is all the more reason for us to take seriously, working hard to become the people God has saved us to be. Now, now go back to verse 14 with me. I'm gonna warn you, this is hard, okay? But Paul thinks it's important, an important part of this process. He goes on to say this, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Um, some of your Bibles, it says it like this, do everything without complaining or arguing. Now listen, I think oftentimes we can get way too over-spiritual, which leads to us over-complicating the Bible, right? I think some of us will read a verse like this and go, do everything without complaining or arguing. I wonder what Paul meant when he wrote that. Man, that's deep, right? What deep, profound thing was Paul trying to get at when he said to us, don't do anything without complaining or arguing. Well, here's what we all have to know. Paul meant exactly what he wrote. He meant, don't do anything while you're complaining or arguing. That's what he meant. Now, I know this is hard for some of us, right? Because some of us in the room really like to complain, 
and some of us in the room are really, really good at picking fights and arguing with people, aren't we? And here's the advice I would give you on both of these things if you struggle and, and, uh, and you're trying to figure out how you can move past it, all right? First, if you're a person who just complains a lot, I'd encourage you to get out of bed every day and to count your blessings, not your problems. Count your blessings, not your problems. Man, I know we all have problems, right? We all do. Work stinks, marriage is hard, kids are crazy, dog just died, favorite TV show got canceled. It's almost summer, my pants are still too tight, right? We, we all have problems that we're trying to work through. But look at me, we've all been blessed as well. We've all been blessed as well. God has been good to us, and there are things in all of our lives that right now we can point to if we choose to do so and to say that in my life is a blessing. Now listen, I know that there's some of us in the room who would say, James, I, I don't know. I, I'm not really sure, bro, that, that right now and what I'm walking through, I have much reason to feel blessed. James, I, I feel like all I'm surrounded by is problems. So how in the world can I count blessings when I don't really know that I have any? Well, I want to give you two things that have really helped me to focus on my blessings over my problems, even in hard moments in life, okay? First thing is this. I try to force myself to remember that somebody out there has life way harder than I do. And I consistently, on a regular basis, make it a point to step into the lives of others who have it harder than I do, yet they still refuse to complain. This is why I personally go out of the country once a year and do a mission trip. That's so why I love going to third world countries and hanging out with both missionaries and native people who are literally living in hell on earth and just being around them. It's why in a few weeks I'm going back to Africa with a team here from the church. We're going to be in bush villages in the middle of West Africa, third poorest country on earth, where people every day are living with no electricity, no running water, kids are dying from preventable diseases. Yet you meet the Christians of these villages and they're the most joyful people you'll ever be around in your life. You never hear them complain about anything. And I'm just telling you, this will be my fourth time to Africa. Every time I come back, I'm saying the same thing. What do I have to complain about? Life may stink and this may be hard and we might be lacking in this area, but man, we're blessed. You see, I don't know what all this looks like for you, what it looks like for you to, to step into the life of, of someone who has it harder than you, yet they still refuse to complain. All I know is that by doing so on a regular basis, a different person's perspective has the power and ability to change our perspective and to make us more aware of the blessings in our lives versus life's problems. The second thing I've tried to do is this, is I've just tried to remind myself as often as possible that my problems here on this earth are temporary. I mean, we've been saying this whole series that as followers of Jesus, this world is not our home. That there is coming a day when we're gonna leave this world and we're gonna receive the great blessing of going home to be with Jesus. And here's the beautiful thing. When we leave this world on that day, we leave all the problems of this world behind and we enter into a kingdom where problems and suffering and lack are no more. That's why Paul in Romans 8 says, listen, what you're, what you're experiencing here on the earth, you can't even compare with what waits on you there. And I'm convinced if we'd spend more time thinking about there than here, we'd have a lot less reason to sit around and complain, right? For those of us in the room who have a hard time with arguing, we're just, we're just fighting type people, right? Here's the advice I'd give you. You've got to remember that as followers of Jesus, the goal of your life is to win people, not arguments, 
that as followers of Jesus, the goal of our lives is to win people, not arguments. I, I want you to think about the answer to this question, all right? Why do you argue with anybody? Why do you argue with your spouse, with your kids, with your coworkers, your family members, your neighbors, whoever it may be? Why do you argue? It, isn't it because there's something that you believe you're right about? And that what you're trying to do is to persuade these other people to your way of thinking and believing. And dude, you'll get angry to do so, right? I don't know, you're going to listen to me, bro. You're right, I'm wrong. Shut your mouth. Listen to what I have to say. I'm going to win this argument. That's why we argue. But, but here's the deal. According to the Bible, as followers of Jesus, persuading people to our way of thinking and believing isn't something that we're supposed to do through getting angry and arguing. You don't know how we're supposed to do that? We're supposed to do that by displaying humility and love. You see, humility and love, it doesn't win arguments, but it does win over people. And here's the beautiful thing. When you're a humble, loving person, guess what happens? People actually want to listen to what you have to say. Even if they disagree with everything coming out of your mouth, people will actually listen to you because they're convinced that person's humble, that person loves me. I disagree, but, but at least they care, right? And they'll listen. So here's the advice. You want your spouse to listen? You want your kids to listen? You want your friends to take you seriously? Listen, this will preach. You want unbelievers, people who don't know Jesus, to listen to what you have to say about Jesus to them? Here's what you do. Stop arguing and start loving them. Start being, stop being a, a proud person who needs to win and start being a humble person who displays love toward those who need it. And, and by doing so, you might just be surprised at who bends their ear in your direction to listen to what you have to say. Now, in the next verse, and this is where we'll shut this thing down. In the next verse, verse 15, Paul tells us the outcome of doing all these things that we've talked about this morning. Read this with me. He said, we should do all this stuff that, that we may become blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So Paul says, don't miss it, let's tie it all together. So Paul says, when we work from salvation, not for it, and when we do so with a healthy fear of God, when we remember that God the whole time, he's working on us and in us so that he can work through us, and when we refuse to argue and complain about anything, we become blameless people. What that means is this, is that we become people that other people can't look to and point out things in our lives they can use against us. They can't accuse us of character issues. They can't look at our lives and go, well, that guy's a jerk. No, 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 I'm humble. I, I'm trying to love you, dude, right? He's going, when you live this kind of life and you strive and work hard to become who God wants you to be, you become a blameless person. And as a result, here's what happens. Your life starts to shine like a light in this world. Now, it's so significant that we understand what Paul is saying here. You see, I think no matter who we are, what we walked in the room believing today, we could all agree that something has gone terribly wrong in our world. Like things are not okay here, right? This world is broken. This world is jacked up. We see things happening around us all the time that, that leave us knowing something's wrong. And the scriptures, when it talks about this world, it says what's gone wrong is sin. We live in a broken world because sin is here with us. And Paul points that out when he says we're living in a crooked and twisted generation. Now, oftentimes when the Bible describes this sinful, broken world, 
it uses this word dark or darkness to describe our world's state. And, and we're going to give you a picture of this in a moment. Before we do, there should be a candle somewhere around you, either in a seat back or, or maybe under your chair if you're in the front row. I want you to get it, and I want to paint a picture for us of what the Bible says our world looks like because of sin and all its brokenness. So can we just kind of kill all the lights for a moment? I'll turn off my TV so we can get kind of full effect. So the Bible says this is our world. That every day people are waking up and they're literally blinded to who God is. That the reason our world is so jacked up and broken is because people are wandering around in the darkness of sin, making decisions that don't honor God, making decisions with themselves in mind first. This is what our world looks like. But Paul says that when we strive to become the people God's created us to be, refuse to argue, refuse to complain, when we become blameless, innocent people, the people that God wants us to be, here's what happens, something beautiful happens. Our lives as followers of Christ start to light up this dark and broken world. And I wanna show you what happens when not just one of us take it seriously, this call, but when all of us take it seriously. I'm gonna start lighting some other people's candles and I want you to be nice and to light the candles of those around you. Get up if you have to, but, but let's just start lighting the room up. Parents, you can help kids if you have them. Front of the back of the room, let's just light these up. Again, I want you to pay attention to what's going on around the room. The darkness of this room is being lit up by the light of these candles. And in the same way, Paul is saying that the darkness of this world, the way that it's going to get lit up, the way that people are going to see differently and think differently and live differently is by seeing the light and the hope of Jesus Christ in and through our lives. This is why I want to push our church, Cross Point City Church, to be the people that God has created us and saved us to be. Because listen, we live in a city that's dark and people need to see the light. We go into workplaces a lot of times where, where people are living in the darkness and they feel hopeless and they're wondering, is there light at the end of the tunnel when it comes to what I'm walking through? We live in a world where people walk in darkness and they think about life after this one and they're fearful, not hopeful, because they don't know the Jesus that can offer them eternity with God. But again, as Paul is saying, and you can look around the room, look how amazing it is. Just a moment ago, we were sitting in complete darkness. And all it took was a little bit of light that allows us now to see. Your life, look at me, your life has the ability to do this in the world. And the more you and I will commit together as a church family to do this, the more our city will be lit up. The more our workplaces will be lit up. The more our parks and our ball fields and our gyms will be lit up. And the more this community will look to us as Cross Point City Church and know that there's hope. They'll know that the life doesn't have to be lived how it's always been lived, that they don't have to be the people that they've always been, but there is a God who loves them and who can give them new life both here and in the life to come. Jesus said it best in Matthew 5, 16. As my followers, let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and they glorify your Father in heaven. Church, let's become, let's work hard to become 
the people God wants us to be. Let's trust him to have his way in our lives. Let's put away arguing. Let's put away complaining. Let's be blameless people to the honor and glory of God, our Father. Can we just pray for that right now together? God, it's incredible to see the darkness be lit up. And God, what's more incredible is this amazing truth that our lives can light up this dark world like these candles just lit up this dark room. God, I'm just praying, give us the motivation we need to work hard at our salvation. God, help us to trust that there's nothing to prove, that we don't have anything to earn from you, that Jesus has done that hard work. And God, that because you love us and because you accept us and because you're a good, faithful God toward us, God, let that be our motivation for for waking up every day and striving to be the people that you want us to be and convince us that living that life, God, results in greater joy, greater freedom, not less of those things. God, my prayer ultimately is that you use this church, Cross Point City Church, God, to let other people see the light of Christ. I just pray that you do things in and through us as we work hard to be the people you want us to be. God, do things in and through us that we can't even ask or imagine, God, and, and we're trusting you for that. God, we love you so much, and we thank you for your great love for us. God, we pray all these things in the name of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.